uh, late last week, just as uh, the House is getting set to rise, or I guess the House and the Senate getting set to rise for the Christmas break, the Senate passed third reading of Bill C-21. It was a 60 to 24 vote, uh, so not really close. Uh, the bill passes unamended, means it doesn't have to go back to the House. Uh, so that's that. All that's needed now is royal assent, and C-21 will become the law of the land. This is the government's uh, sweeping new firearms legislation. Uh, specifically, it's called an act to amend certain acts and to make certain consequential amendments uh, to, the, uh, to the Firearms Act. Uh, but this is the government's uh, attempt to put a freeze on handgun sales in Canada and to ban so-called assault-style weapons. The latter part, I think, has really tripped them up along the way. I'm trying to explain what that is, what it is they're banning, and, and why they ended up targeting hunting rifles, despite the fact they said they would not. Because they had a really tough time defining what an assault-style weapon is. And so that led to quite a pushback. Now, this all kind of has its, its roots of the genesis in the, uh, the massacre that unfolded in Nova Scotia back in uh, April of 2020. Uh, and the government responded with an order in council that reclassified a number of firearms, and that set the stage for Bill C-21, uh, which, as mentioned, has now passed both the House and the Senate. But is this actually going to do anything to address Canada's gun kind crime problem? And no doubt we've seen uh, an increase in gun-related violence, and I think people in Calgary and Edmonton can, can attest to that. So what's behind that gun violence, and does C-21 address any of that? Well, someone who's been following all of this very closely and uh, writes, ex writes extensively on gun policy issues is Dr. Noah Schwartz, Assistant Professor of Political Science at University of Fraser Valley in BC. Uh, Professor Schwartz, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, so no surprise, I guess, that the, the government has managed to pass this. I mean, we know there was support from, from the other parties, but um, just your thoughts on, on where we're at here after what's been a, a tumultuous journey for this bill. Yeah, no, it, it's certainly been uh, quite the ride. Um, there were some, a little bit of drama along the way, especially at this time last year, uh, when they tried to introduce some amendments that would have sort of broadly expanded the scope uh, of what uh, was considered an uh, assault-style weapon. They've kind of dialed those back and, and created a future-looking kind of program uh, to, to ban those down the line. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's been quite the ride for both C-21. So let's cover what it does. I, I gave sort of the overview. That I mean, those are the two main components involve handguns and this this strange approach of freezing handgun sales, and also the government's attempts to uh, ban so-called assault-style weapons. Uh, what else do we need to know about this legislation? Yeah, I mean, those are the two uh, big uh, central points. Uh, the legislation really doesn't necessarily do anything new. It's really pressing save on things that, that the liberals have done through executive action uh, since uh, 2019, 2020. Um, so we had, you know, the, the 2020 ban on certain models of uh, what they, they labeled assault-style firearms after Nova Scotia. Uh, you had after the Uvalde shooting in Texas, uh, they uh, announced a freeze uh, on the sale, inheritance, uh, or transfer of handguns. And this legislation really just cements this in legislation uh, to make it a lot harder for a future government to change. Uh, there's also a few other provisions in the bill that are, are somewhat problematic. Uh, it makes really sweeping changes to Canada's red flag law system, um, which, uh, you know, myself and a number of others have argued could have uh, serious implications for people, especially like Indigenous hunters uh, in, in the north. 
um, folks like that. Uh, so yeah, there, there's quite a bit in this bill. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you mentioned, you know, some of the debate in the U.S. Um, or some of the mass shootings that have occurred and, and some of the debates that has prompted in the U.S. around the, the ease uh, that, that people have to, to access to, to, to certain kinds of firearms, semi-automatic rifles in particular. To what extent do you think that debate ha- has affected the debate here? Oh, hugely. I, th- I think the government uh, here in Canada is essentially running off of the problem in the United States. And if, if there is a, a very, very deep connection there. You know, the, the problem that we have with guns in Canada is largely a result of, of being America's neighbors, right? The United States, um, many, some states in the U.S., uh, you know, like Washington State, uh, have fairly strict gun control. Uh, most have very, very loose gun control. Right. And as a result, this means that it's quite easy for guns, especially handguns, which are small and easy to transport, to make their way uh, up north to Canada. Um, which creates our gun problem. We know that, you know, uh, upwards three-quarters or more of firearms ending up uh, on the streets in Canada are coming from the United States. Um, at the same time, most Canadians don't really understand Canada's strong gun control system. They watch a lot of news about what's going on in the United States. So this creates incentives for politicians to try to, uh, you know, play politics with what's going on in the U.S. And, and like I said, we saw this with the timing of the announcement of the handgun freeze. It came right after a mass shooting in the United States that involved a handgun. So the government is sort of working very hard to create that connection in the minds of, of Canadians and to try to, you know, play politics with that. Yeah, and it's it's a very different uh, gun culture. I mean, you mentioned the, the big differences in legislation, although it does vary. I mean, you know, you've seen in the U.S. how the AR-15 has kind of become this, this political symbol. And, you know, in some states, it's very easy to purchase uh, a firearm like that or a comparable firearm and, and oversized magazines and, and bump stock and all the rest. It seems like a very different reality here. I mean, we don't have the same culture in order to, to buy and possess a semi-automatic rifle. It just seems like it's not night and day. You know, you mentioned maybe the Canadians don't fully understand those differences. Just how different is it? Oh, I mean, it's hugely different. In Canada, you know, you can't even touch a gun without uh, without first going through the, the possession and acquisition license system, um, the, you know, firearm licensing system. So it involves taking a course. Uh, there's at least a 28-day waiting period in practice. You know, once you take your course and apply for your license, it's probably more like a three- to six-month waiting period. Um, you have background, you know, a daily background checks that gun owners go through. You have to have the sign off of your significant other. If you've had a breakup in the past two years, you have to get your ex to sign off on your license. Um, and then that's not even to get, you know, restricted firearms like handguns. That process is even more strict. There's quite a, a number, there's a strict vetting system that Canadian gun owners have to go through. Um, and Canadian gun owners have to have a valid reason to own a gun. You know, in the United States, uh, in many states, you can go in, uh, purchase a gun. That's uh, They consider that part of their Second Amendment rights. In Canada, you have to be a hunter or a sports shooter or a collector. So yeah. you have to have a valid reason. And, and in some provinces, for example, if you want to own a handgun, you have to be a member. In most provinces, actually, you have to be a member of a, of a licensed club. So the, the restrictions are quite strict, especially when you compare it to states like, like Texas, where, you know, it's just a background check standing in between you and a firearm. Right. Well, and yeah, there is concern about the impact this could have on hunters and sports shooters. You know, could more have been done maybe to to uh, at least amend the legislation if, if the government was intent on this going ahead? Could it have at least been improved in some of those areas? Certainly, yes. Yeah, no, there were a number of areas where the government could have shaved off some of the rough edges of this legislation. Uh, so, for example, I, I went in front of the Senate uh, committee that was studying this bill. Um, and, and suggested a few things. Um, I feel like the bill was painted with a very broad brush. So, for example, the freeze on handguns uh, includes both, you know, semi-automatic handguns like Glock, 
but also, you know, things like cowboy pistols, uh, that there's a community of cowboy action shooters that uses these. Things like, uh, you know, single-shot uh, pirate pistols, things that, that, you know, there's a community of collectors that uses these. Uh, so there's a number of areas where I feel like there could have been more nuance brought to the bill, and especially, once again, around the, the red flag laws. Uh, the changes to the red flag system allow uh, any person ex parte, so without the, the defendant even knowing about it, to apply for a revocation order for someone's firearms. They don't even have to know that person. Uh, and so, uh, you know, myself and a number of other experts raised serious concerns about the implications that this could have, uh, especially for Indigenous people who rely on their firearms to hunt for sustenance and stuff like that. Right. Uh, we know that Indigenous people don't always get a fair shake in the legal system. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it just seems like it's a system that's ripe for abuse. But unfortunately, no amendments were attempted on that. No, and I guess the government would argue maybe that this is a necessary trade-off in order to address public safety. But, that you know, that gets to the crux of the matter here. Does this address public safety in any meaningful way, in your view? No, it really doesn't. You know, if we think, take the example of the red flag laws, for example. Uh, for example. So Canada, since the 1990s, has already had really strict red flag laws that the Canadian Bar Association, so the association that represents lawyers, has said are, you know, sufficient and preferable to the changes that the government's making. So a lot of this is really, um, it's really window dressing. You know, we can talk about freezing handgun sales, but when the overwhelming majority uh, of handguns are coming illegally from the United States, uh, we're really not addressing the crux of the problem here. Similarly, uh, with, you know, the so-called assault-style weapons. Uh, in Canada, any semi-automatic uh, rifle is limited to a five-round magazine. So we don't have the problem that they do in the United States of people with, you know, 30, 60-round uh, magazines, um, you know, walking around with these semi-automatic rifles that can do quite a, quite a bit of harm. So a lot of this legislation is really, it's, I think, more about politics than policy. Right, and unfortunately, we, we do see that. I mean, you know, there, there is a lot of maybe political mileage to be gained from, from the gun debate, certainly in, in big cities where you have relatively few firearms owners. And, you know, as you alluded to, we can sort of import some of these, these issues from the United States. Uh, there, there are a lot of politics here. Do you, do you find that that's, that's often been the case in this country? I think that's something, yeah, uh, especially in the past few years. Um, I think, you know, we've seen this in a few areas. Uh, where the current government uh, has really, you know, they don't want to run against the conservatives in this country. Um, it's more profitable maybe for them to run against uh, the Republicans because most Canadians are, are quite offended with, you know, the contemporary Republican Party and Donald Trump. And, and I think it's quite alarming to people here. So if the government can try to make it seem like, you know, things in Canada are like the United States, there's a lot of, like you said, political mileage uh, to be gained there. And gun control is really an issue where that's been very profitable. As I said, because people very rightly, you know, they look at what's happening in the United States and, and they're horrified and they don't want that to happen here in Canada. Um, and they don't really understand uh, the differences in legislation that we have here that uh, do a very good job. You know, Canada's existing gun control system, as it's been since the 1990s, does a very, very good job of, of keeping guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The problem is we live next to the country with, you know, we share the longest, uh, the world's longest undefended border with a country that has more guns than people. So there's unfortunately a limit to our ability to control firearms in this country as a result. Well, yeah, and I mean, that's one area to focus on. What, what else, you know, should we be focusing on when it comes to gang violence or the drug trade or just some of the gun crime that we've been seeing in, in recent years? No, certainly. Uh, there are a number of, of crucial areas where I think there's a, a lot more investment needed. Uh, so first of all, obviously, at the border. Um, now, you know, the Canada-U.S. border is huge. We have 75% of our foreign trade going across that border. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to search every single car going across. 
Um, but giving, you know, police more money to conduct uh, intelligence operations and to disrupt these networks is crucially important. But then also looking at the demand side of the equation. Why are people, especially young people in big cities, um, picking up guns in the first place? Why are they useful tools for criminals? Uh, so trying to uh, get in there, invest in programs that divert young people from gangs, um, that try to get them into the legitimate system and, and earning money legitimately, especially as young people are facing, you know, a, a generational crisis around housing, around affordability, around food. Uh, I, I don't think this problem is going to get better. So we really need to do more to fix those things uh, and, and really address some of those systematic root causes that are driving people towards gun violence. We'll leave it there for now. Some great points. Uh, Noah, thanks so much for making some time for us here this morning. Appreciate it.